Good morning, once again. Can I return with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10? Just a little quick review for the new folks. We are going through Matthew's Gospel here at, uh, here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we uh, have entered into chapter 10. Now, when chapter 10 first opened up, it opened up with Jesus choosing from his disciples 12 men whom he appointed to be apostles. We saw that in verses 1 through 4. And then the Lord gave to these men their ministry, which we see in verses 5 and 6. He told them, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. After he gave them their mission, he then gives to them their message. He said, just go and simply preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verses 9 through 15, he gave them some instructions to follow. And in verses 16 to 23, he gave them some warnings to heed. If you weren't here last week, please get the CD, because we really went into those verses and um, showed you some things that you might really want to, uh, to understand. Well, starting in verse 24, he doesn't really begin a new section, but he kind of segues into a new thought uh, that's really built on the same things he's been talking about. And in this section, it deals with the cost involved in serving and standing up for the Lord in a hostile world where the Bible says the devil is in control. I mean, 1 John 5.19 says to us, the whole world lies under the sway or the control of the wicked one. So we're living in a very hostile world. And Jesus Christ entered into this world through the incarnation, of course, the light penetrating the darkness. The darkness tried to extinguish it. Uh, it could not. Light is always more powerful than darkness. Now, Jesus Christ entered this world of darkness, moral and spiritual darkness, a darkness that was brought on by the fall of man. And Jesus entered this darkness, this world, to light men's way back to God. He became the light of the world. He said, I am that light, the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness. And then at one point he told his disciples, now you are the light of the world. And you are to continue the mission I have begun. Well, he's preparing them to take over when he departs after his resurrection. And so he is going to be sending them out. But he wants them to understand, and he wants all of us who are his disciples to understand as we are being sent out into this hostile world. This is a world controlled by the devil. It's a world that's hostile towards God, the things of God, and the word of God. And of course, because we represent God, it's going to be hostile toward us. And so in a roundabout way in this section, Jesus is going to be challenging these men along with the rest of us, much like Joshua challenged the people of God in his day, when he said to them, look, choose today whom you're going to serve. Because in Joshua's day, the people had not been in the land that long at all, about maybe 25 or 30 years, uh, the promised land, and already they were turning away from the Lord. They weren't leaving God completely. What they were doing is they were trying to mix their devotion with God with a devotion and love for the world. And Joshua was saying, look, you cannot do that. You can't have God and the world. You've got to choose between God or the world. So Joshua says, choose today whom you're going to serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And Jesus Christ, in a similar fashion, is saying, look, guys, to be one of my disciples is not going to be easy. 
I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out into a very hostile world. And let me tell you something. It's not going to be easy. It's definitely not going to be fun, although there will be joy. But I want you to understand, you've got to choose what you want. Because you can't have me and the world. You've got to choose me or the world. And so Jesus would go on to teach in this passage that there are costs involved in following and in serving him. And you better count the cost. This is the heart of discipleship, which he's getting into now. And so he is going to be laying out the costs in this section from verses 24 to 42. The cost of discipleship, the principles of discipleship, some have even called it the hallmarks of discipleship are going to be enumerated in these, in these next few verses. Let me, let me uh, begin by quoting something that Pastor John MacArthur wrote uh, in his commentary on Matthew. He says, and I quote, Because the truths of Matthew 10 are so foundational and so profound, believers who have wholeheartedly lived out these truths are the men and women who have made great marks on the world for Jesus Christ. They are the ones with total dedication, total commitment, and total obedience. Florence Nightingale wrote in her diary, she said, I am 30 years of age, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now, no more childish things, no more vain things. MacArthur says years later, near the end of her heroic life of service, she was asked the secret of her ability to accomplish so much for the Lord. She replied, I can give only one explanation, and that is this. I have kept nothing back from God. MacArthur says that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage, keeping nothing back from him. When the famous surgeon Howard A. Kelly graduated from medical school, he wrote in his diary, Today I dedicate myself, my time, my capabilities, my ambition, everything to him. Blessed Lord, sanctify me to thy uses. Give me no worldly, worldly success that may not lead me nearer to my Savior. MacArthur says, soon after graduating from college, Jim Elliott wrote this in his diary. He said, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. MacArthur said, God answered that prayer. And in the flower of his young manhood, Jim Elliot's life was cut short by the spear of an Aki Indian as he and several other young men sought to take the gospel deep into the jungles of Ecuador. And then he said, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher and theologian whom God used to bring revival to colonial America, wrote, he said, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retain anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him, I have given myself wholly to him. I have given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. I have expressly promised him, for by his grace... I will not fail, end quote. Look, folks, these people are expressing the heart of true discipleship. True discipleship is giving everything up for Jesus, all right? True discipleship is saying, look, here is my life. I don't retain any of it for myself. I lay it on the altar of sacrifice. Take all of me, Lord. 
the people that wanted to really make a difference in this world had this kind of heart. Uh, I'm sorry to say we don't see a lot of this today. I think the church has really helped beat out of people this kind of a commitment to God by telling people in the church, it's all about you. God exists to make you happy. You know, we have become the center of everything in our Christian life. These folks, it's obvious Jesus Christ was the focus. He was the center of their lives. They were willing to give up anything, suffer anything, go anywhere, do whatever the Lord wanted to bring Him glory. This is the heart of a true disciple, guys. This is what it costs to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And the Lord begins to lay out for us in this passage now from verses 24 down through, I think, 42. Some of the costs uh, of being one of his disciples. And the first thing he tells us, listen now, he teaches us, first of all, verses 24 and 5, that disciples of Christ are hated by the world. Verse 24, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So in verses 24 and 5, Jesus gives us one of the main principles of being his disciple. Here it is. Don't expect to be treated any differently by the world than he was. Very simple. If you want to know how you should be treated by the world, look at Jesus. How was he treated? Jesus said, if they, speaking of the world, have called the master of the house. He was the master of the house. They have called the master of the house Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a pagan deity that the Jews used as a term for Satan. So Jesus is saying, look, guys. If they've called me Satan, what do you think they're going to call you who served me? Hey, the world is not going to applaud us, right? The world is going to be hostile to us. Jesus said, if the world, if you were of the world, the world will love you. But since you're not of the world, the world is going to hate you and treat you just like they hated and treated me. He said, but you know what? That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 3, he actually said, What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the true prophets the same way. Look, we have to cultivate a mindset right up front. We have to choose what we want as Christians. Do we want to be a friend of the world or do we want to be a friend of God? Do we want to keep things real watered down and even hide our light under a bushel so that our peers like us? Or are we going to stand up for Jesus and be a light in this dark and Paul said perverted world and be hated for his namesake? If you want to be a disciple of Christ, it starts in the way you think about yourself, your purpose, the world around you, why you are here, what God wants in your life, what God wants to do through your life. It all starts in the way you think about what a disciple is. Jesus said, if you want to be one of my disciples, get ready. As the world has treated me, it's going to treat you also. And I tell you what, this is becoming more and more of a reality in our country with each passing day. 
Christians are being looked upon more and more as evil, intolerant bigots because we speak out against things like like abortion and homosexuality and other uh, sexual perversions while defending the values and morals which God has set forth in his word. And Jesus said that this antagonism, the more you stand up for Christ, the more you let your light shine, the more you're going to become a bullseye for the devil's attacks. And this antagonism, Jesus said, would eventually lead to persecution against those who belong to him. But he admonished us three times in this passage, in verses 26, 28, and 31, he said, do not fear. And that is the second principle of being a disciple of Christ. First of all, disciples of Christ are hated by the world. Secondly, disciples of Christ are not to fear the world. In verse 26, we read, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. So in these verses, the Lord gives us three reasons why we, as his disciples, shouldn't fear the world. You ready? Because of God's vindication in verses 26 and 7. Secondly, because of the world's limitation, verse 28. And finally, because of the believer's valuation in verses 29 to 31. Let's look at these quickly. First of all, as disciples of Christ, we shouldn't fear the world because of God's vindication. He said in verse 26, Therefore do not fear them, the people of the world, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. First believers should not be afraid of the world because Jesus assures us here that one day God will vindicate us. The therefore looks back to what Jesus said in verse 25, how that if they've called me the master, Satan, what is the world going to call you? All right. The idea is that even though we are accused of being wicked and even demonic by the world as we serve and speak out for the Lord, Jesus said we are not to fear for. You see the word for there in verse 26? It looks forward to the fact that someday the truth will be known. Look, right now, the world, and what's in view here primarily is verbal persecution. Verbal persecution from the world. I heard one time on a program, some expert in this area was saying that if you want to silence somebody quicker than any other way, ridicule them. Ridicule is much stronger than disagreeing with somebody. All right? Ridicule is belittling, it's mocking, it's, it's, it's putting you down, right? None of us wants to be ridiculed. It's a great way for the devil to shut us up. Get his people to ridicule us. The world laughs at us. They mock us. They think we're these, you know, goofball, uh, you know, idiots, you know, that are so out of touch with, with reality, right? We're living in the past, you know, just these stupid Bible thumpers, you know, trying to impose our morality on everybody else as if the world's not trying to impose its morality on us, right? And right now it's difficult to deal with that because, you know what, innately we want to be 
uh, liked. We want to be accepted among our peers and so on. It takes a very special person, one that is very much sold out for Jesus, to stand up and take the heat today. Because it's everywhere. We fear what people think about us. But the Bible says the fear of man brings a what? A snare. But Jesus is saying, look, someday the righteous are going to be exalted by God. Someday the world is going to know that we were his servants, that we were serving him, that we were living the right way and speaking the truth, right? Someday the Bible says the righteous will be exalted and someday all the wicked and all the evil things that men and women have done against the people of God, against the purposes of God, someday God will reveal that and they will be punished. Jesus said in verse 26, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Someday God is going to vindicate the Christian and he's going to condemn the rebels. The writer to the Hebrews says, look, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Look, you know, as, as believers, we can get a little discouraged at times because it seems like evil people are getting away with all kinds of things. Understand this. Evil people are not getting away with anything. God keeps excellent records. You can read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Because someday every unbeliever who has rejected Christ is going to stand before Jesus Christ himself at the great white throne judgment. And the Bible says the books will be opened. The books One book will be a ledger containing every thought, word, and deed that they ever had contrary to what God had said was right and true. And the other book is going to be the Word of God, God's righteous standard. And they're going to be judged. You know, people say, well, you know what? I don't need Jesus. When I stand before God, I'll I'll tell him all the nice things I've done. He'll let me in. Okay, well, uh, good luck with that. Because that's not what's happening, okay? Back in John's day, God had books. Maybe he's got a jumbotron now in heaven. I don't know, you know. And maybe he's going to play, you know, video of their whole life. I don't know. But believe me, he knows what each person has done. And uh, they're going to have to answer for those things, those crimes against him. And they will be punished. You know, the world looks at us right now as losers, right? I mean, in the eyes of the world, Christians are the biggest losers. And yet someday God is going to proclaim us winners overcomers the world right now exalts certain people right and calls them winners god says someday they're going to be losers they're going to lose the most important thing i ever offered them eternal life they didn't want it they pushed it away you know the bible says jesus himself said that that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of the world is an abomination in the sight of god and so the lord is admonishing us through this to be bold And to proclaim everything he has given us in the way of truth. Holding nothing back, no matter how unpopular it might be with the people of this world. And that's why Jesus said in verse 27, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. This is simply the Lord's way of saying, Whatever I reveal to you through my spirit in your private studies and devotions, that you should proclaim publicly. In fact, proclaim it from the housetops. Well, 
you know, they would have understood because in Israel the housetops were flat. They were patios. We've already talked about how they had stairs leading up the side of the house to the roof where they would have places where families, the family could gather and so on, okay? Uh, but you know what? That, that rooftop made an excellent elevated platform and therefore a pulpit, right? If you wanted to announce to the community, to the neighborhood, something important, you would go up to the top of your house and you would shout it out, right? And that would tell everybody in your surrounding community, look, this is what's going on. We're having a special meeting or this or that, right? Well, they understood when Jesus said, proclaim it from the housetops. In other words, don't hide it. Get up there and preach it and preach it all. Everything I've given you to preach. I like what J. Vernon McGee said along these lines. He said, I always think of a radio as being the best way of preaching from the housetops today. Put an aerial on your rooftop and you can pick up even the most difficult radio stations. This is the way we preach from the housetops today, and I think it is an effective way. You know, I agree. I agree, and I praise God, and we thank Him for uh, the opportunity to be on the radio and to preach the good news and to preach the, not only the gospel, but to teach the word, okay? Proclaiming it to Chicago and the surrounding areas and all. We shouldn't be hiding the truth of God. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. We should be openly proclaiming it. Listen, first and foremost, by the way we live. Because in the roundabout way, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, shout it from the housetops, was saying, don't hide it under a bushel, right? Isn't that what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, look, you're a light. You know, you don't light a lamp. It's stick it under a bushel in your house. You put it on a, a table or a, a lampstand where it can give light to the entire house. He said, let your light so shine. How? By your life. That when people see you living a redeemed life, they will come to you and say, what is with you? You are not like anybody I have seen. Well, I'm a Christian. Let me tell you about it. So first of all, Jesus admonishes us not to fear the world's ridicule because someday God will vindicate us. So God's vindication, verses 26 and 7. The second reason we shouldn't fear the world is because of the world's limitation. Verse 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, listen, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Look, verses 26 dealt with verbal persecution by the world. The second thing he says, don't fear, is the physical persecutions of the world. Jesus is saying, look, the world is limited in what it can do to you as my disciples. All it can do is kill the body. That's about it. We say, that's a lot. Well, let me just balance it. What did he go on to say? Fear God who can do what? Who can kill the body and soul and cast them into hell forever. Here's what he's saying. If you fear what people think about you so much that you don't receive Christ to escape verbal persecution and ridicule, now, well, you know what? You've got a bigger problem on your hands. Because the fear of God, that should be uppermost. Because by not receiving Christ, because you don't want to be ridiculed by the world, someday you're going to stand before God and hear Him say, I never knew you, depart from me. Into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what's the greater fear, right? I mean, sure, the world can kill the body. I mean, I know when you talk like that, you know, say, well, look, it. You know, Jesus said, look, don't be afraid of the world. They can only kill your body. Well, that doesn't really comfort me too much. 
you know, I think I'll just keep my faith in myself then, if you don't mind. <laughs> Listen to me. Listen to me. I, I, I don't even understand what I'm about to say. All right? That could be a sign of unbelief. You realize that? I mean, I'm not saying everybody who's afraid to share their faith openly is an unbeliever masquerading as a Christian. I'm not saying that. But you know what? There are a lot of people in churches who call themselves Christians who never would speak out for the Lord. Why? Because they don't want to commit social suicide. They don't want people to think badly of them. They want to have friends. They want people to like them. But Revelation 21, verse 8 has an interesting thing here. Talking about those folks who will finally one day be cast into the lake of fire or into hell. You know what? The first one that leads the list is what? The cowardly. The cowardly. Along with the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, and so on. Will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. There's a lot to be said, and Jesus will go on to nail this in just a few verses. Where he said, look, if you don't confess me before men... I won't confess you before my Father in heaven. That's a pretty strong statement. We'll look at that in detail next week. But the idea is that, look, if you're truly a child of God, it's becoming, and we're getting into the time, guys, when it's going to be harder and harder to walk the fence. It's going to be harder and harder to kind of have the world in one, you know, with one hand hold on to Jesus with the other. It's, it, you're going to have to make a decision. I, I believe the time is coming. When, you know what, God is going to force people to make a decision. Just like Joshua said, choose today whom you're going to serve. And Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So you've got to choose which one you're going to serve. God or money, but he meant the world. And it could be that those folks who are afraid to speak out for Jesus, it's because they don't really have faith in their hearts and the power of the Spirit upon their lives. I'm not saying it's all the time. I'm just saying that's something to think about. There's a mindset today that has been fostered because of all the... Uh, and I've been reading an interesting book that has chronicled the uh, church growth movement and uh, how the church growth movement has moved us away in an effort to build big churches. They have moved the church away from the preaching of the cross, Christ-centered, you know, take up your cross, follow me, that kind of thing. And they have deliberately made the church man-centered. And they will tell they tell pastors in seminars, if you want to build a big church, you've got to preach the felt needs. You've got to tell people what's going to make them feel good. Forget all this negative stuff. All this, you know, talk of sin and judgment. Okay, hell. People don't want to hear that stuff. They come to church, they want to be uplifted. They want to be made to feel good. Even if they're living in sin, I guess is the idea. doesn't matter how they're living. It's our goal just to make them feel good. Now look, I like to feel good. I'm sure you folks like to feel good at times, right? I like to go, when I'm away on vacation, I go to church with my family, and I want to hear the preacher, you know, I, I, I like to feel good. But I don't want to feel good so much that I'm not willing to hear, you know, the bad. You know, I don't want just what I want to hear. I want what I need to hear. Amen. Preach it. We want the truth, right? If you're a disciple of Christ, and I'm talking about a true, full-on disciple of Christ, you don't want the easy messages. You don't want 
to be placated. You want it, give it to me straight. If I need to be kicked in the butt, kick me in the butt. Now, there are times, of course, when we're in a passage and it's all about God's love. It's all about God's encouragement. And we love that, right? But there are passages that are very difficult to hear because our fallen nature doesn't really want to hear the hard stuff. Yet we need to. Our redeemed nature says, but you need to hear the hard stuff. And one of the things that we have gotten away from is a mentality that used to be a foundation for the Christian church in America. Paul expressed it in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. He said, yes, and all who desire godly to live godly in Christ Jesus will. Will what? Have Cadillacs? Be healthy and wealthy and prosperous? And that's why I come to church. I want to hear all that stuff. No. All you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. See, folks, today, because the church has moved away from a Christ-centered to a man-centered kind of a theology, it's not about what I can do for God or how I, what I can have the privilege of giving up for God. It's what is God going to do for me? There is an entitlement mentality that has seeped from the world into the church. An entitlement mentality. It says, I'm entitled to be blessed. It's my right. You, you have preachers telling us that. If you're a child of God, it is your birthright to be blessed and be prosperous. If you are not, you know what? You're dishonoring God. Because you shouldn't be poor. If you're poor, you're dishonoring God. Well, you know what? As I read the great some of the great examples of faith, you can read about them and the great hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Read about what it says about those folks. They were destitute, tormented, afflicted, wandering, you know, uh, you know, living in, in caves and, 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 and homeless, wandering the earth. And, 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 and yet they were committed to God. They were on fire for God. Many of them were killed because of their faith in God. They weren't living half the hog. But they were true men and women of faith. If you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, you, you have to move away from this man-centered, I'm the center of the universe kind of theology that God only exists to make me happy. And so Jesus, first of all, admonished us as believers not to fear the world's verbal slander and ridicule because someday God will vindicate us. Secondly, Jesus admonished us not to fear the world's physical persecution because they are limited in what they can do to us, right? So we have God's vindication. Secondly, the world's limitation. And finally, the believer's valuation. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, when you read this, it almost sounds out of place, doesn't it? I mean, here Jesus is talking about not fearing what the world can do to you verbally, persecute you physically. Then all of a sudden he just talks about sparrows, not pharaohs, sparrows, all right? Uh, you know, and how much they're worth, and you're more valuable than many sparrows. And you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not quite sure how this fits into what he's been talking about. Well, listen, the first two dealt with verbal and physical persecution. This last one indirectly deals with psychological persecution. 
You see, when you're talking about the world, and that's what Jesus is saying, don't fear the world, right? When you're talking about the world, let's not forget who, is the, who the God of this world is, right? Who is the God of this world? Who's in control of the world's system, the world's technology, the world's media, uh, pumping into the world a certain agenda and mindset? It's the devil, right? He is the God of this world. He controls this world's system. He controls this world's media. And as such, he controls this world's thinking. Right? He has got a godless, anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-Bible agenda that he's been pumping into the brains of people, you know, for a long time. And if you study the subject of spiritual warfare in the New Testament, you'll discover that the mind is the focal point for much of the devil's attacks against us. If he can get you to think the way he wants you to think, he can get you to live the way he wants you to live. Bottom line. That's why, and I challenge you to read your New Testaments and notice all the places where God talks about becoming transformed in your thinking. Start having the mind of Christ. It's all over the place. Because God knows that if you're going to live a transformed life, it starts in the way you think. About life, about material possessions, and so on. Now, we talk about the devil. He has honed his attacks against us into a powerful one-two punch. So what do you mean? Well, as he moves in the hearts of his people to verbally and even physically attack us, he then hits us with a psychological assault in our minds by making us think if God really loved us or if we were really saved, we wouldn't be experiencing all this persecution. See, see how it works? He gets his people to attack God's people. And as they attack us verbally and physically, you know, and maybe we lose a job because we're a Christian, it gets out, the boss doesn't like Christians, and so he or she fires us or gets rid of us, right? And you know why they did it. And so you're thinking to yourself, and the devil is pumping this into your head. He's, he's you know, saying, look, if God really loved you, or if, you know, you were really right with God, you were the kind of Christian God really wanted you to be, you wouldn't be going through, maybe you're not even saved, because if you were, you wouldn't be going through all this junk, you know? And so what is the devil doing? You know, at a time when you need God the most, you're going through physical and verbal persecution from the world, you need to draw close to God. He gets in there and he makes you think that God is against you. God's your adversary. How cruel is that, right? And yet we buy into it, don't we? We ought to know better, but we buy into that kind of thing. And he just attacks us, right? He gets us to think that, you know what, the persecution means we're not right with God when folks in reality, just the opposite is true. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the Philippians. And by the way, when he wrote this epistle, he was in prison in Rome waiting to stand before Caesar to give his defense against some false accusations. Paul didn't know if it wasn't going to lead to his execution. So he's in prison in Rome writing to the church in Philippi who itself was going through some rather rather severe persecution. And I'm sure the devil was doing the same thing to them that we're talking about right now. I'm sure that a lot of them were thinking to themselves, you know what, we must not be right with God. Because if we were right with God, wouldn't he be protecting us? If we were really living for him, wouldn't, wouldn't he be protecting us from all this bad stuff? And so they're, they're thinking that the persecution equals... Something's wrong in our walk. And what did Paul do? He said in verse 20, he said, Look, don't be terrified by all this persecution from your enemies, your adversaries, which is to them 
proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Paul is saying, look, if you're being persecuted for your faith in Christ, know this, two things are going on here. First of all, the world is proving that they're on their way to hell. Because you know what? If you know God, you don't persecute God's people. So it's to them a sign of their own destruction someday. To you, this proves that you belong to Jesus. No worldly person, first of all, is going to put up with persecution for Jesus' sake. That's why persecution against the church has always purified and strengthened the church. Because the first thing that happens is all the phonies run for the doors. What do you mean, persecution? I came here to get blessed. I became a Christian so I can get goodies that I was promised. What are you talking? What is all this persecution? And they split. And that's great because you know what? The church is weeded out. Okay, there's maybe only a quarter of people left, but they're strong. They're on fire. That's what you want. Give me a hundred on fire, cross-carrying believers. I'll take them any day of our 10,000 lukewarm pew sitters. Any day. So Paul says, look, far from proving something is wrong with your walk because you're being persecuted, on the contrary, it's proven something is right with your walk. Because look it, even carnal Christians are not going to do anything that's going to cause the world to hate them. Because carnal Christians want too much to be liked by the world. I'm not saying they're not saved. But you know if what your friends think about you, your unsaved friends that you work with or go to school with, or what, if they mean more, what they think more to you than standing up for Jesus, it might mean you're not even saved at all, like we said earlier, but it could simply mean, no, you're just very carnal. And Paul is saying, look, you guys are really manifesting the heart and lives of true disciples because only true disciples stand up for Christ, and therefore only true disciples are persecuted by the world, right? Verse 29, for to you it has been granted, the Greek means it's a privilege God has given to you to suffer on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Look at, you think that persecution means something's wrong with your walk? Look at me, I'm in prison in Rome because I stood up for Jesus. Look, it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. This is what we're not being told today. You know, we're being told in many church circles, if you're suffering, you're letting the devil get at you. Because God never wants you to suffer. Uh, excuse me, that's not what my Bible says. Paul said it is a blessing, a privilege to suffer, to believe, and also to suffer for his sake. He talks in verse 29 as we bring this to a close. Jesus said, you know, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? The copper coin Jesus spoke of was Nasarian. It was the smallest coin in circulation in Jesus' day. It was about one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius was equal to, the, to a day's wage of a labor, common laborer or a soldier. So a Nasarian was one-sixteenth of a day's wage. And one of these copper coins would buy two sparrows, which were considered so cheap, these little sparrows, that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells us, that you could buy five for two of these copper coins. In other words, uh, the merchants considered these little birds so valueless, if you bought four, they threw an extra one in. All right. So one coin buy you two sparrows, two coins got you five. Because the merchants would toss in one, all right? Because it's a little bonus, all right? And Jesus is saying, look, yet not one of these creatures falls to the ground. Some say the Greek is hops on the ground. 
without your Father in heaven knowing about it. And then he talks about even the hairs of your head are numbered, right? Now, some of us make that easy on the Lord. But, you know, if you think about that, every time you comb your hair, God's got to readjust the count. And, you know, why in the world is that important to God? How many hairs are on top of my head? It's not important to God how many hairs on top. But He wants you to know that He's counted each one and keeps revising the count constantly. Why? Because He wants you to know if He's that concerned about how many hairs you have on the top of your head, if He's that concerned about the littlest things in your life, don't you think He's concerned about the big things? And certainly the persecutions. Certainly the things that you may be prone to think, God doesn't love me because He's allowing these things. Jesus is saying, no, that's not it at all. You are more valuable than many of these little sparrows to God. They, not one can fall to the ground, but your Father allows it. And yet you are His children. He loves you more than you can ever realize. Yes, but then why does He allow His children to suffer at times? Because there are some things that God can only produce in our lives in the way of character by going through suffering. Now look, worldly Christians don't get that. Worldly Christians don't want to hear that. End times Christians want to have their ears tickled and will gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. That's what Paul said would be a mark of the last days in the church. That's what we're seeing today. True disciples of Jesus Christ, true disciples, they don't look forward to persecution, but they will embrace it when it comes because they understand it's in the will of God to not only believe on Jesus, but to suffer for his name. Because it makes us like Christ. He was a suffering servant. He was afflicted and tormented. He was bruised for us. He was a suffering servant. And he said, if you want to be one of my disciples, you better understand what's involved you got to take up your cross and follow after me. It's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy. Let me just say this, guys, as we close. This is something that we need to understand. All right? And look, I don't want the word to get out in the street. If you want to get depressed, come to Calvary. I'll grow because I walked in happy that Sunday, and now I'm feeling pretty bad. And I wanted, you know, I wanted a spiritual hug, and I got a kick in the butt. And, you know... I'm having a hard enough time as it is out there in the world. I need to be encouraged a little bit. Look, we want to encourage you. We want to encourage you. We have a lot to be encouraged about. Our God's on the throne. I don't care what the devil's trying to do. And someday Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make it all right. I mean all right. It's just that between now and then, we're going to have some tough road ahead of us. Jesus is getting close. And so the devil is ramping up his attacks. And I think the time is coming in the very near future when we as Christians in America uh, are not going to just be dealing with ridicule and verbal persecution. I think it's going to turn somewhat physical. Already they're passing laws and have actually passed a, a law uh, against hate crimes. And they're defining it like you can't even talk out against homosexuality. That's a hate crime punishable by imprisonment and a fine and so on. I'm just trying to say, look, true disciples want it straight. True disciples say, give it to me. Don't water it down. Tell me what the Bible says. The Bible says that, you know what? The people of God are going to be persecuted. We're going to suffer. And we better know that now because you prepare for a difficult time that's coming by right now preparing the way you think about things. Do you think if things suddenly get very bad for Christians, persecution comes, I'm speaking physically and all, do you think 
people who go to some of these churches that are just telling them all these positive things they want to hear, do you think they're going to be ready to deal with what's coming? Their faith is going to fall like a house of cards because it really wasn't built at anything but lies, telling people what they wanted to hear instead of what God said they need to hear. So it's not easy being a disciple of Christ. I mean, it's the, it's the only life worth living, but it's not easy. And things are hard now. They might be getting a lot more difficult in time to come. And I want you guys to stay strong. I want us to cultivate a mindset that says, like Job, Lord, even if you allow me to be killed, I will still trust you. I am sold out. I am in this for the long haul. It's not just because of the goodies you give me. Lord, if, if, you, if you take every earthly possession away and I face persecution and even martyrdom for my faith, by your grace I will stand firm. By your grace I will die praising your name. That's going to be something you cultivate right now as a mindset. Not when they're strapping you to the, you know, like in the old days, to the pole and laying the firewood around your feet. You don't say, I better get my heart right with God now. Okay? We need to cultivate that mindset now. So, if you decide to come back next week, we'll continue this. Uh, you know, we'll finish this section on discipleship and what really is involved. So, I mean, you know, I understand if you don't want to come back, but uh, I, I'm confident most of you will. All right. Uh, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you don't, Lord, give us, <laughs> you don't placate us, Lord. You give us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but your truth. And, Lord, we praise you for that. We don't want to be sweet-talked and placated. We want, Lord, to know what's involved. We want to know what is possibly coming. We want to prepare now, Lord, in times of peace, for times of persecution and hardship. And, Lord, we will prepare for it as we draw close to you, as we fall more in love with you, as we, Lord, like so many saints of old, who were so sold out, so on fire, so committed. Lord, we need give us that heart and spirit today. Father, we are the product of, of 50, 60 years of man-centered theology. Forgive us, Lord, for buying into that. You don't exist to make us happy. We exist to glorify your name, whether in life or in death. Give us the grace, Lord, to walk in the power of the Spirit and to be a light in these last days, that we might someday... Stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful in a few things. Enter now the joy of your Lord. Father, we long to hear those words. We praise you and thank you. We ask you for grace, Lord, and power of your spirit. We're going to need it to live the life you want us to live. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.